Welcome to the Shared Sedek Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Here you'll find a live recording of just about every sermon, Devar Torah, teaching, or story from our Arab Shabbat and High Holy Day services. We know that you wish you could be with us more often, and we understand life getting in the way is not a bad thing. To live Jewishly is to understand that just as important as it is that Judaism happens in the synagogue, it's even more important to live Jewishly in your home and on your way. So here we are, in your home, on your way, maybe even on your morning run. If you ever have any questions or want to continue the discussion, let one of us know, and make sure you check out our live stream and YouTube channel for more ways that Sharid Sedek is available to you on demand. Keep an eye on your shofar and email so that when you're able, you can be with us as well. Looking forward to seeing you soon. The great medieval Spanish-Jewish doctor, philosopher, and poet Yehuda HaLevi wrote of his longing to be in Jerusalem, my heart is in the east, while I, I am stuck here in the west. I know that some of your hearts are slightly southwest of here this evening, but I want to sincerely thank you all for being here now. For those who were hoping that we were going to have the game on the screens behind us, I'm sorry. And to those of you who are Yankees fans, you made it easy for yourselves. Um, they did win, right? They did. And then for the Rays fans, hopefully we have one more game. And if not, you didn't miss anything anyway. So that works well. As a 21-year-old living in Israel during my first year of rabbinical school, I was falling in love with the land of Israel just as I was falling in love with an in-depth study of Judaism, learning Torah in a way that I had never studied before. There are things that don't seem out of the ordinary when you're in rabbinical school that otherwise might perhaps seem strange. Like when my teacher, Rabbi Moshe Silbershine, asked me to run to the chapel one day to go grab a Torah. And so, not thinking much of it, I went to the Merstein Synagogue up the stairs and inside from the courtyard that housed most of our classrooms to grab a Torah, saying hello to the receptionist, Linda, who worked the front desk part-time. Linda had made Aliyah moving to Israel after her retirement, and she still answered the phone as if she were the receptionist for her synagogue in Long Island. (laughs) I began to take the Torah from the Ark, not realizing that the four other Torah scrolls in the Ark had been leaning on the one that I was starting to remove. I realized it fairly quickly, though, For as soon as I moved my Torah, the others all started to fall. I had hold of the far-right Torah, which is not a political statement. All of the Torahs say the exact same thing. (laughs) But I had the far-right Torah, and the next one over had fallen forward so that my right shoulder, which made the catch, was holding it up. My left arm had the other three Torah scrolls in kind of a hug, 
and I felt that moving either arm would result in exactly what I was trying to avoid. I gave you the visual, I can go back to, okay. <laughs> so I called out for help to no avail, repeating my call, finally hearing, would you please keep it down? I'm trying to talk on the phone. <laughs> Coming from the other side of the wall, and my apologies to Linda and anyone from Long Island for my poor <laughs> impersonation. Now, I had learned since Sunday school that dropping a Torah resulted in fasting for 40 days. Now, actually, it was 40 consecutive, a few of you were paying attention. It's actually, as, as I had learned, 40 consecutive half fasts, as opposed to the full day fast of Yom Kippur, one would fast from sunrise to sunset. We have several of these throughout the year, and these consecutive fasts are similar to Ramadan in Islam. Now, I was realizing in rabbinical school how much I had not learned in Sunday school and how much I had forgotten, but this I remembered. And while I also knew that in the event of a Torah dropping, those 40 days could be split by all those who witnessed the event, I was alone <laughs> with five Torah scrolls. <laughs> and even knowing the fact that the fast would only be sunrise to sunset did not help to calm me down. The food in Israel was too much of a highlight to even think about not eating again in the daylight for what would be 200 days. <laughs> and forget about the fast. What if I dropped them all and they broke? Torahs are not cheap. I had student debt, and I had not yet taken Fundraising 101. <laughs> so surely, as I'm, all of this is going through my mind, Linda must not have realized that it was me screaming from the chapel. So I called out again, a little more urgently this time, help! And the response came back more urgent as well. Would you please keep it down? I'm trying to talk on the phone. Still terrible, I'm sorry. So at this point, I tried switching to plan B, readjusting my arms, realizing that my initial assessment was confirmed, as the Torahs started to slip further. I called out again, this time with no answer at all. I'm sure that it hadn't been more than two minutes, maybe three, before I heard Cantor Tamar singing her way down the hall, because that's what cantors do. <laughs> but you can imagine even those three minutes would have felt like an eternity. Help, I called again, knowing that if this didn't work, the Torahs and I were most likely both going down. Luckily, Cantor Tamar heard me and came to the rescue. Linda felt terribly, by the way, although it had been a very important phone call. <laughs> I went back to class, shaking just a bit, but holding the Torah that had been the cause of all my tzuris, and not feeling very good about it. Thinking back, it seems a shame to me that something that I had grown to love so much could cause so much fear, even if only for that moment. So of course, I told my class what had happened and 
Rabbi Silbersheim comforted me, sharing that his recommendation would not have been for me to fast, but rather to study something each day for 200 days in honor of my relationship to those Torahs. Maybe, he added, had five Torahs fallen, I would have had you fast for at least one day. I realize now that he wanted me to celebrate my love for the Torah rather than cower out of fear of it. It turns out I would learn later, not from Rabbi Silbershine, that the whole 40-day thing is a myth. We'll add that to the list of myths that I have busted from the Bema. It'll be the new, the new TV show on, yes. Busted from the Bema, I like it. Now, myth, myth might not be the right word because there is record of at least a couple rabbis, mostly over the past 200 years, who have required 40 consecutive days of sun-up fast, taking Shabbat off in the event of a drop Torah. But this is a very small minority, and it's strange that this is the custom that so many Reform synagogues end up teaching. The custom originates with the Talmud, where we learned that if one witnesses a Torah being burned by an oppressive king, they should tear their clothing as if they had witnessed the death of a parent, spouse, sibling, or child. The custom of fasting for a day, or three at the most, non-consecutive, a Monday, Thursday, and the following Monday, also accompanied with tzedakah, when a Torah falls to the ground, is a new one. And it became widely accepted at the end of the 18th century, always viewed as custom, not law, and left at the discretion of the local rabbi, many of whom, in the case of an accident without negligence, didn't require fasting at all. And only in the last service giving this sermon did I realize how much I was tempting fate by having written this sermon to be given on a night when all of our Torahs would be taken out of the ark, being held. You all did a wonderful job. Now, whether it is a one-day fast or a 40-day fast, I see two risks to having this kind of consequence, especially that most extreme one. First is creating a fear of holding the Torah. The second is that the Torah as a physical object would be deemed to be what is holy rather than the words that are written inside it or the traditions and values that it represents. Of course, the Torah is something we want to protect and take care of. It's handwritten on parchment, completely natural, taking as much as a year to write. Some are very old, and as I mentioned, they're not cheap. Most importantly, the Torah in any form represents the relationship between humanity and the divine. And regardless of one's belief about God, the Torah represents our history, a history of humanity trying to do better because we believe that we have some kind of ultimate responsibility to the world and its ongoing creation. The Torah, both as an object and as a greater idea, is something that deserves our utmost respect but it is not something we need to be afraid of. It's something we need to be in awe of. 
And most importantly, we need to be in awe of what it represents. I try to convey to every bar and bat mitzvah student that at the moment in which they receive the Torah from the arms of their parents, the last thing I want them thinking about is fear of dropping it. But I do want them thinking about how truly awesome it is that they are holding both literally and figuratively the same traditions that were given to us so many generations ago. And that this Torah can mean something completely different to them than it did to their ancestors and still be just as special to them as it was to their ancestors. I also tell every student that they have to make at least two or three mistakes during their service. I tell them that it's because Rabbi Cantor and I are going to each make a mistake or two, and if they don't make any, it makes us look bad. <laughs> but I also tell them that they're human. Humans make mistakes. Mistakes are not something to be afraid of. And the service, like life, is not about being perfect. I want them to be nervous on that day. But I want them nervous from the awesomeness of the day and what it means, not nervous out of fear of what might go wrong. Fear of punishment as a result of our mistakes, either in this world or the next, is described in the Zohar, the medieval book of Jewish mysticism, as a kind of fear that has no foundation. This kind of fear is referred to as pachad in Hebrew. But the term yirat Adonai or yirat shamayim, the fear of God, the fear of the heavens, is almost always given in a positive context rather than a negative one. It's given as an expression of piety. In the Passover story, the Hebrew midwives who refused to follow Pharaoh's decree, saving the lives of Hebrew baby boys, including the one who would become Moses, were called Yirat Adonai, fearers of God. And Job, whose tent was always open to the orphan, the widow, and the stranger, was called someone who feared God and shunned evil. The Zohar describes this kind of fear as a recognition of our smallness in the world. But Rabbi Alan Liu, often referred to as the Zen rabbi, taught it differently. Girah, he writes, is the fear that overcomes us when we suddenly find ourselves in possession of considerably more energy than we're used to, inhabiting a larger space than we're used to inhabiting. In so many ways, this fear, Yirah, this dichotomy between our smallness and our greatness, finding balance between humility and an acknowledgement of the potential magnitude of the consequences of our action, the emotion that comes with that, especially as modern rational Jews, is exactly what brings us here tonight. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and the days between them are called Yamim Hanoraim. Noraim is the same root as Yirah. What we call the days of awe is the same Hebrew word that is used for that fear of God, Yirat Adonai. But it's the opposite of a fear of making mistakes. It's standing in awe on these days 
that we can make mistakes and be forgiven, that we're supposed to make mistakes and learn from them. Each of us is in a personal relationship with God, and making mistakes, dropping the ball, or even the occasional Torah, is part of being in that relationship. That's why, just as we are asking for forgiveness from God, we're supposed to be doing the same of our loved ones, our family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, anyone with whom our relationship has had dropped moments. Buber teaches that God exists in our relationships with others, so Yerat Adonai, that fear and awe of our relationship with God and the greater world, means finding the same fear and awe in each of our relationships. So the way in which we approach those relationships with one another, this is where we can perhaps learn the most from the concept of Yerat Adonai and the different answers to the Torah-dropping question. To love another is to stand in awe of who that person is and what they add to our lives. And to love someone that way, of course, means also fearing losing that person, fearing harming that relationship. If that fear consumes us, however, the loving relationship can be damaged as a result. We will make mistakes, and so will they. The question is how we each respond when they do. Fasting represents not fear of mistakes, but it can represent an acknowledgement that our carelessness or negligence has led to the current situation. And this is such an important step in seeking forgiveness not only from God but from one another. Tzedakah, giving charity, represents an attempt to use our deeds for good. And again, this can be an extremely important part in healing our personal relationships as well. But my teacher, Rabbi Silbershine, showed a wisdom that goes far beyond most of the rabbis who have been a part of the drop Torah debate over the past few hundred years. In suggesting that I study Torah, my teacher was directing me toward a way of finding and focusing on the things that I loved about the Torah rather than the mistake. Developing my yirat Adonai, my loving, fearing awe of God and the world in which I lived in a positive way, rather than the pachad, the negative fear of punishment for having made mistakes. In our own relationships, study can do the same, inspiring us to learn ways in which we can communicate better with our loved ones, learning how to respond to minor drops with attempts to not only heal but strengthen our relationships as a result and ensuring that we're better prepared for future drops and understanding why our lapses, even those we may deem as insignificant, can have an extremely significant impact on the ones we love. And yes, there are times that a relationship can also be desecrated, like the Torah that is burned no fasting, charity, or study can make that Torah return to its initial form. Sometimes forgiveness is possible. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes these relationships can be healed, and sometimes they can't. Our prayer is always, when safe, that they can be. 
but our prayer and our charge is also to do everything we can to ensure that we don't get to that point. Jacob awakens from his dream, a dream in which he visualized his relationship with God in the form of angels that were ascending and descending on ladders to heaven. First, he says, surely God is in this place and I did not know it. And the text continues, Vayira vayomar ma nora hamakom hazeh. He is shaken, frightened, in awe of what he's witnessed. And he says, how shaking, fear-inducing, how awesome is this place. It is none other than God's abode. The first step to nurturing our relationships with God and with another is recognizing their importance, never taking them for granted. I have taken many Torahs out of the ark since that day just about 17 years ago. And even knowing what I know, understanding what I understand, I still feel that moment of Yirah whenever I do. I'm not afraid of dropping the Torah, nor am I afraid of any fasting that might ensue, especially since I learned it's my decision. <laughs> but I do think, how awesome is it how awesome is it that we are still in possession of this wisdom and all of the wisdom that has come from it through generations of those loving, fearing, showing awe to God. And most importantly, when I hold that Torah, or even better, when I get to hand it to one of you, I feel that love that I felt as I was truly getting to know the Torah for the first time on those streets of Jerusalem. I feel gratitude that that love has evolved, grown, and matured from that place, even as I seek that initial passion of those moments. May all of our relationships, as we enter this new year of 5780, be filled with moments of Yira. May we treat our relationships and those we love as the holy vessels that they are, seeing mistakes as avenues to improvement, respecting and loving each other enough to not forget that God dwells in the connections between us and never desecrating that presence. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy and the portion we read this past Shabbat, as Moses is preparing to hand the reins of leadership of the Israelites to Joshua, he says, Lo tira velotechat. The lo tira means do not fear. Don't have that yira, which may seem surprising to us, here having heard what a positive quality it is. But he continues, velo techat. Do not be dismayed, shattered, or paralyzed. Don't let your awe keep you from moving forward. To stand in awe is to acknowledge grandeur, and it can be paralyzing. So may our awe lead us to action, may our fear lead us to love, and may our relationship with God and with those around us continue to evolve and grow as we all aspire to live lives of peace together in a world of peace.